This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 873. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, joined today with my buddy Rob Abasolo. On today's show, we're going to be talking to a real estate investor named Kate Lynch about her journey from a Wall Street investment banker to a real estate professional in her 40s. This is a great show to listen to if you're a working professional wondering how you could spend more time with your family, your children, and those you love, and also get the largest return on your investment. After this interview, we're going to be answering an audience question in our Seeing Green segment, so you're going to want to stick around for that. That's right. You're going to love that question. Rob and I answer one of the most commonly asked questions right now, very hot topic on if you should rent a property out as a short-term, a mid-term, or a traditional rental. And without further ado, let's get to Kate. Kate Lynch, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you for that. First question, when and how did you become an investment banker? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I I was just sort of your stereotypical overachieving uh, undergrad, uh, straight A student, uh, really hustled my way into a job on Wall Street, uh, wanted to be doing you know the best in anything that I could do. And that was the creme de la creme for people interested in finance. So after I got an MBA, um, I just worked my tail off until I got there. Is it true that investment bankers work like 100-hour weeks? I've always heard this from every investment banker that I've ever met. It was when I was on Wall Street. We literally would work from probably nine in the morning until... Well, you, you had to work until your job was done. And, uh, that often meant you were there the next day. If it's, if like, if it's not done, you're still working the next day when people show up for work. Um, I probably had a dozen or so of those all nighters when I was living in New York, but yeah, it was, you know, 9 a.m. to sort of between midnight and 3 a.m. on a regular basis. Did it look like the show billions? It was intense. It, we, I, it was amazing and fun. And I, I, it was the best thing I've ever done in terms of my career, but, um, uh, it was hard. I've always wondered if like those New York stereotypes actually play out because I've never been there. If it's like you got people screaming at you like boiler room and then like papers are flying up in the air, even though we don't really use papers now. And like someone showing up with like a hot dog or a slice of pizza that they just got off because that's all you could eat. Wait, hold on. You've, ne- you've never been to New York? Let's not make this about me, Rob. Like. <laughs> We gotta, we gotta go to the Spotify studios and, and do some shows out there, man. You're missing the best pizza in the world. It was intense. So the, um, you know, we were, we were working from nine in the morning till three in the morning. We ate every meal at the office. And, uh, I used to tell new recruits that were asking like, Oh, what's, how do you get a, uh, work-life balance? And I was like, your work-life balance is your friends with the people sitting next to you because <laughs> you don't leave the office ever. And if you don't like those people, your life sucks. Was there a lot of forget about it going around? There were a lot of F-bombs. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> different, different F word, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so obviously this is a, a, a lucrative career from my understanding and lots of hours go into it. What did this allow you to do financially working in investment banking? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was probably... You know, making when I was living in New York City between four and six hundred a year. Um, wow. The, yeah. But the, and that was at a junior level, right? The senior level bankers are one to two million. Um, and what's funny though is that, um, New York is just so ridiculously expensive that you don't get that much for the money. Right. So when I was in my late thirties, I decided to move home to Cleveland. Um, and I took a little bit of a pay cut because of that, uh, where I was making, you know, three to four hundred a year, but you can get a house literally 10 times the size of what you get in New York for the same price. Uh, we have a house on Lake Erie. We have a swimming pool. We have beach. Uh, we're 10 minutes from downtown. We can see the skyline. I mean, it's ridiculous what you can get in Cleveland versus what you get in New York. People making one or two million a year, I would say they take more expensive vacations, but they spend way less time with their family. And it's, it's just not, I think, a great trade 
It's just bigger. You add a couple zeros, but you're not getting anything more. So was there a point where you realized I'm good at doing this? I'm making good money, but it's a hamster wheel I'm never going to get off of. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Right. So my job was advising the CEOs of banks on buying or selling banks uh, and raising hundreds of millions of dollars of capital debt and equity to support their growth. Uh, that's pretty exciting stuff. Right. And we, it was, it was fun. And I, uh, I loved the financial analysis. I loved the fact that I was giving advice to CEOs of banks around the country. Um, it felt pretty cool to do until, well, obviously I didn't have much of a social life when I was, when I was working those kind of hours. And so I didn't get married until I was about 40. And at that point, uh, I didn't have much of a window to have children, even though, you know, we wanted to have kids. So we decided just, you know, to have kids if possible. And we had three kids in the four years after we got married. And then, uh, I was still expected to be on the road two to three days a week. I was, because I was living in Cleveland, I was driving to meetings around the Midwest. So I would leave the house at five or six in the morning, drive four or five hours to meetings, try to bang out two or three meetings in that day, and then get home at between like seven and 10 PM. So I had three babies at home who I wouldn't see two or three days a week. I was, you know, pumping milk in the car and then turning it over to my, I had both a full-time nanny and an au pair living at our house who were um, taking care of my kids. And so that was the point when the job turned from awesome and fun and lucrative to what the heck did I, did I get myself into? And just to give you a sense for my mindset prior to having the kids, I actually told my boss before having the first baby that I was not going to take maternity leave. I thought that, you know, I'm used to working long hours and little sleep and I can handle this. Um, and I had, I really had no concept of how hard it was going to be to take care of, uh, a new, one newborn, much less three of them. Um, and, uh, so then I, I just had that, that moment that, or that a feeling that so many people, I think in your audience have, which is I'm in a, a place in my life that I, I need to make some changes and it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I think everyone would hear you know, how much one can make in this industry and be like, oh yeah, I mean, the, with the money, it's like that, that buys happiness. But I think most people that have been there probably understand that there is a moment where money sort of maxes out on the happiness scale and you really start missing all the things in your life that you had to give up to even get there. Right. So you're, you're at this point, I think you're starting to make that realization. What was the exact moment where you felt you needed to make a change well, so we, you know, we had a lifestyle that required the income that I was bringing in. Um, and I kicked around like, oh, do we like sell the house and the boat and, you know, give it all up and go live in the middle of nowhere. But I just didn't think that having built this life over the last 25 years that, that, that we would be happy living off the grid somewhere off of, you know, off living off the land. Um, and I had a growing sense that I needed to do something else and that searching phase where you're trying to say, well, you know, listening to podcasts and what's out there, how can I achieve this financial level without this job? But it wasn't until actually the podcast you guys did with Ashley Hamilton that I oh, nice. yeah, changed. Great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I was literally driving home from a meeting at probably, you know, nine o'clock at night. It's dark outside. I know my kids are going to be asleep when I get home. Um, and I listened to that podcast and it just, changed my mindset 180 degrees because she was in her early twenties. She had two kids, a single mom making $20,000 a year as a waitress. And when I heard her say that she has acquired 10 properties and is home with her kids, it was like, Oh, <laughs> that hurt so bad. I have, I worked on wall street. I have an MBA in finance. I had more than a million dollars in my 401k. And here I was getting home after my kids went to bed, not seeing them for a whole day. It just felt like I messed this up, or at least I, you know, I can do better than this. And 
I thought, you know, if I can help a multi-billion dollar bank sit, figure out how to not fail uh, through my financial uh, skill set, surely I can figure out how to uh, get myself to a place of financial independence, especially if somebody like like her can do it. Why would I? Why Why should I not? And I really owe it to my kids to go from thinking about it and wishing I could do it to just getting it done. And that that literally, after hearing that podcast, I... I was committed. I am going to make this happen. I will find a way or, you know, at least I'm doing something about it. I'm not just going to keep wishing for it. That's amazing. Well, for anyone that hasn't heard that podcast, I can attest to how amazing it was before I was ever on the show. I remember listening to that as a listener and that's episode 331. So go check that out after this podcast. Uh, But I want to ask, Kate, because you're obviously you're feeling all of these. um, I guess the wheels are turning, right? You're listening to this episode and you get into real estate do you feel like you had any advantages getting into to real estate coming from investment banking? And if so, what were they? Yeah, I mean, certainly my ability to run numbers is uh, relatively good. Um, but it's, you know, running numbers in real estate is not all that complicated. It's just how much you invest and how much you get back. Um, maybe just the, the willingness to crunch numbers over and over and over again until I find the answer that I'm looking for. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I started looking into every possible avenue, listening to the podcast and reading the books, um, figuring out, you know, where can I get the most bang for my buck? Like I said, I had about a million dollars in my 401k that I decided I was going to use and I wanted to get as much as I could from that. And, uh, so it was, you know, is it commercial real estate? Is it, um, store? facilities, what, and just running numbers and numbers until I found a path that I thought would maximize the cash flow for the amount I had available to invest. So you had been exposed to real estate. You liked it. You just wanted to figure out which type of real estate that you were going to get into. Yeah. I mean, my exposure purely came from bigger pockets, right? It wasn't like I had zero uh, experience with real estate before. And listening to s- some of your podcasts with other, with other guests, I often heard people telling a story of, you know, they were trying to replace thirty thousand or forty thousand dollars of income, and so they could get into a property that was earning them a thousand dollars a month. And I was like, you know, if I have a property that makes me ten thousand dollars a year, I literally need thirty to forty of them in order to replace my income. So I thought, you know, initially I thought, I don't know if it, if it, uh, residential real estate would get me there. Um, ultimately, as I uh, continued searching. I figured out that um, I could make it work with primarily triplex uh, in Cleveland uh, using a short-term rental strategy. I always think it's funny when people say, oh, I've got 55 units somewhere. And you're like, I really love real estate. I'm like, well, you can love cats, but you don't need 55 of them. That's not always the best way to go. So my goal is having time, right? <laughs> my goal is need 55 cats. If I want to have time with my kids, 40 properties doesn't seem like the right way to get there. Yeah, that's a great point. You're just jumping out of one problem and right into the next one. So, all right, awesome. We're going to get into how Kate built that small and very mighty portfolio that replaced her investment banker salary right after this quick break. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rental retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? (laughs) It's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's 
REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to rentoretirement.com today. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners' capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. And we're back. We're here with Kate Lynch, a former real estate investor who made a change later in life to go all in in real estate. Kate needed to replace her huge W-2 salary with real estate income in order to gain back time with her family. And we're going to break down exactly how she did it. How did you go about creating that plan to invest in real estate while you're still working this full-time demanding job? Yeah. So I just, you know, was at night on Zillow and, you know, like I said, listening to everything I could online while, cause I was driving so much. I had a lot of uh, ability to just listen to everything I could. Um, certainly Rob and his, um, channel teaching people about using Airbnb and how much more lucrative that was, was a big, uh, factor for me. Um, I wanted to, um, get into real estate in a way that felt less risky. So, you know, obviously David, you wrote the book on the, long distance real estate investing, but I wanted to do something, or at least I would say I spent more time analyzing opportunities closer to home because it felt like a lower risk approach to me. Um, and I found that you can buy a triplex in Cleveland for about the same price as a single family home, but with way better cash flow. So I have a question. I think there are probably a decent amount of people that have you know, some liquidity or some amount of money in their 401k in, in the stock market. You said you had about a million dollars, which is obviously a very healthy start for anyone. But what was the actual process? Like, how do you leverage money? If you have a million dollars in the stock market, how do you get that money out and then apply it towards real estate? Is there like a particular process? Is it a self-directed IRA? Tell us a little bit about the movement of funds there. Yeah, I've heard about... um 
people using um, processes to keep their money in a 401k and invest in real estate, but I couldn't do that because I wanted to live off the cash flow. Right. So for me, I had to, I just liquidated it and there's a 10% penalty um, and you have to pay tax on the income. But as you guys know, the, um, the benefits uh, on the tax side from the real estate, I was able to use to offset a lot of that income uh, that I had to report. Um, I was lucky enough to, to be able to mess so with my husband qualifies as a real estate professional. Um, so I was able to take a big advantage of that tax benefits in order to not have a huge uh, hit on the tax side from, but I just, I liquidated it and it felt scary to close out my 401k. But if you think about it, it's, it's really supposed to be a retirement account and I was using it to retire at 45 instead of 65. So I guess it's, you know, I, I did use it as a retirement account. I just had to pay the fees for doing it too early. Sure. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that the actual answer is like, Oh, I just took the hit. Uh, usually <laughs> there's always some secret answer or someone's got some strategy that no one understands, but, um, I love it. So did you, obviously you put money in there, you got it to a million bucks. I'm sure you made a good return there. Can you talk about a little bit about the return profiles that you were, getting on your investments in stock market versus your real estate investments? Like how does the ROI compare with both asset classes for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, the long-term returns in the stock market are around 10% per year. That's been, you know, there's certainly great years and there's terrible years in the market, but, uh, over the last 80 years, it's been an average of around 10% per year. And I don't, my returns, I wasn't a phenomenal investor. My, as an investment banker, I was advising companies on buying other companies. I wasn't uh, doing individual stock trading. Um, but you know, I had decent performance, you know, just like anybody else who invested over the last 25 years, um, mostly in index funds. Um, but in, uh, in real estate, I'm getting, I would say around, uh, I get like 45, 50% return on the cash that's invested in my portfolio, which, uh, is obviously a huge win and certainly worth paying a 10% penalty, right. To get there. Yeah. There's a, there's a Delta there. Uh, well, that's amazing. Okay. So I guess I have to ask because obviously I like short-term rentals and, uh, you said very nice things. So I appreciate you watching the channel. Um, you mentioned, you decide to get into the real estate game, the short-term rental game, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to get into short-term rentals in Cleveland. Uh, that is not typically a market that I have my eyes on. If someone came to me and they said, hey, I want to start here, it's not necessarily where I'd point them. So what about Cleveland appealed to you? What, what was it about that that made you sort of go all in there? From a starting point, I live in Cleveland, right? So I, I it's always helps to know the market and uh, what the opportunity is there and what the neighborhoods are that are good to invest in. Um, but I think it really comes down to something David talks about all the time. And that's the, you know, you have that inverse relationship between appreciation and cash flow. And I think that mo when you talk about that, most people probably, if you were to draw a graph of that relationship, you would probably start your appreciation at like zero and up, right? Uh, the Cleveland market, interestingly, I think you uh, actually blow well through the zero uh, metric on the appreciation side and you have actual negative equity uh, going into the property and incredible cash flow, right? So I think you get way out there on both parts of the spectrum. Um, and the reason for that is... The properties in Cleveland, you can buy a triplex for between two and three, two and $300,000. And the long-term rent value on those is a, you know, around a thousand a month per floor. So a normal investor is getting 3000 a month because of that. Um, the, the market is one where the renters don't really expect you to update the house. They're fine with living in a place that hasn't had, uh, the kitchen or bathroom updated in 40 or 60 years. Uh, they're also okay with the fact that they have a window air conditioner and you have to turn it off when you blow dry your hair if you don't want to blow a fuse in the house. Right. So when we, um, started buying properties, we knew we would have to do renovations. They ultimately were far more expensive than what I thought it was going to be going in. So I thought it was going to go in. 
I, right. I thought I was going to go in with a burst strategy. Um, the first place that we bought, uh, we just bought for 180,000 of cash and we spent about a hundred thousand dollars to renovate. You know, we had to renovate three kitchens, three bathrooms, all new appliances. Uh, it's about 5,000 square feet of hardwood that we had to refinish and it's gorgeous, but that's, that's a lot of square footage to, to refinish. Um, after, Spending around two hundred eighty thousand dollars on the house, we uh, I was ready to get a loan on it, and it appraised for two hundred thirty five thousand. <laughs> so that's uh, feels like a loss, except that uh, so I was able to pull out one hundred eighty thousand from that loan. So I had net one hundred thousand in the house, and the first year uh, that I put that on Airbnb, I made fifty thousand dollars profit. Wow. Okay. So let, let's recap that a little bit. So you wanted to do the burst strategy, which is where you buy it, you rehab it, you rent it, and then you refinance. And hopefully, um, you get the ARV, the after repair value so high that you're able to get all of your money back out. In this instance, you were able to get 180,000 out of 280,000 out and you left a hundred thousand dollars in the property. Most people see this oftentimes as like they, they failed at the task that they didn't really perform it. But David actually talks about this quite a bit in Burr, um, his book. Go, go check that out and, um, talks about David, your philosophy here is, even if you have to leave some equity in the house, it's not really like a loss because the equity does actually exist if you were to go and sell it, right? But not in my case because I can't sell it for I can't sell it for two eighty because it appraised for two thirty five. Yeah, but that's okay because then in a year of renting it, then you made that fifty thousand dollar differential. Yeah, so so from a return on investment standpoint, I'm making fifty thousand dollars a year on a hundred thousand dollar investment. That's a phenomenal return. The that's why I said it's it is negative appreciation and. The, the long-term rental market in Cleveland is fine with having, uh, terrible plumbing and electric, but the short-term rental market, as you know, Rob, they're not going to put up with a nasty old kitchen. They're not going to put up with gross rugs and, um, and, you know, scratch up floors. The place has to be gorgeous to get on the first page of Airbnb. And, uh, I was buying houses that are 120 years old and absolutely beautiful, but they've never been renovated. I literally have a 100 120 year old bathroom. <laughs> so to get that plumbing and that electric and the, all of that taken care of, it just costs more than what the thing uh, is going to be worth after you renovate it. Um, and for me, like I said, I was looking for the maximum cash flow for every dollar that's invested. It would have been great if I could really do a burr. Um, in this case, I have about, you know, a 30% um, cash in the house, right? A, a traditional house, you're trying to put down 20%. In this case, I've got more than 30%. David, how, how often did you run, run across this in your Burr journey? Did you ever come across, I guess, negative appreciation the way that Kate's talking about here? What's the solution? Is it just usually time and waiting it out? Well, are we saying appreciation? Does that mean equity in this case? Because appreciation would be like the value of the property going up over time. But in this case, we're talking about the the uh, appraisal coming back for less than what we thought. So that would actually be equity, right? That's what you mean, right, Kate? Yeah, I have less equity in the house than I invested in it, no doubt. That isn't common, but it did happen, right? Over like 40 burrs, that probably happened like two or three times, I would say. And a lot of that is just appraisals are not a science like people think, right? It is a measurement of value. It is not the actual best measurement of value. The best measurement of value is what someone's willing to pay for it, but there's no way to put that into an Excel spreadsheet. So we come up with an appraisal as some type of method of feeling like we have some idea of value. And I found a lot of things impact appraisals. One appraiser could think it's worth more than others. One appraiser could choose comps that are better than others would be. 
sometimes you get an appraisal and as, as odd as this is that comes in less when you're refinancing. But if you were selling the house, the appraisals come in higher. I've seen this many, many times over my career. So that does happen, but that's okay. That's why we have different strategies within real estate. So like Kate had just mentioned, there wasn't as much equity in the property as she thought, but because there is usually an inverse relationship between equity and cash flow, now Kate's cash flowing $50,000, which I think almost everyone listening would happily take that over the equity. And in four and a half years, you're just going to pay the whole thing off. And now it doesn't really matter if you lost the 50,000 equity because you've gained 200,000 or $250,000 in equity over that period of time. And you can put a HELOC on it or you can refinance it and, and hopefully repeat it. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I would argue with the appraisal, right? I, I, I know what other houses are selling for. And um, in this market, the long-term rent customers aren't going to pay for the kind of renovations that you have to do to make a good quality Airbnb, right? And my, uh, my uh, contractor on the one house kept telling me, like, I think you're making a mistake. You got to stop. And I was like, no, no, I, I, I think this is the right path. And um, uh, almost all of these properties are on the first page of Airbnb in my market. And, you know, they're, they're renting for $100 a night for a three bedroom, 2000 square foot place that with a huge porch and, uh, you know, a, a garage and laundry for free and uh, close to the Cleveland Clinic. And so it's so much cheaper than a hotel where people can stay. I have cribs and um, rocking chairs in them. But uh, $100 a night is $3,000 a month times three units. All right. Now that we know how Kate developed her strategy, we're going to dig into her costs, exactly how much money her properties are netting and how she's doing this in, of all places, Cleveland. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash bppod. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. I want to ask, not a lot of people, me included, immediately think of Cleveland when we think about short-term rentals. So what was it that stood out to you that made you think, I think I can do a short-term rental and compete with hotels here as opposed to the traditional vacation market that most people think about? Yeah, I think uh, primarily the Cleveland Clinic. So as I was listening to podcasts, a lot of your um, people on the Airbnb side or even the midterm rental side talk about being close to a hotel. And um, Cleveland has a phenomenal world-class uh, medical services uh, center here where I have guests coming from you know, Pakistan, who are getting uh, procedures done at the Cleveland Clinic, and their whole family comes with them and they'll stay for two months. Um, and so I think that that is a, a huge draw. And all of our properties are uh, relatively close to the Cleveland Clinic. And that um, I think is is very impactful in terms of, like you said, I'm competing with a hotel, but for people who are traveling with their family and want to stay together and not in hotel rooms. Yeah. And I suppose you had the backup plan of, well, if if for some reason it doesn't work, I can rent it out as a long-term rental and I just have the prettiest long-term rental in the world. Well, on the note of having a property that does stand out a bit, maybe from a hotel, whether it be price or cost or whatever, you're furnishing three units, which is pretty expensive to do at once. So what is the average that you're spending to typically furnish your short-term rental units, especially in a triplex situation? Because you know it's very different from furnishing a three-bedroom home, for example, where you're just buying the sofas one time, you're buying one TV for the living room. You're buying everything three times for every single unit. So surely it's got to be expensive. It adds up. I have a lot of points on my Amazon card. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, I... 
you know, I, I, I will say the first house I bought, I did, it was all Facebook marketplace. Uh, and listening to you, Rob, talk about, you know, buying, uh, what do you say? Buy nice, not thrice. Uh, I, I learned my lesson, uh, with, uh, buying some, you know, sort of cheap stuff the first time around because, you know, you're so scared getting into it the first time. Um, I try to buy, uh, high quality stuff that will last because it's going to get a lot of abuse. But, uh, yeah, I think I'm probably around $10,000 per floor, right? Which is, I think, in the, in the range for any, um, you know, two to three bedroom space. That's actually not, that's not bad at all. Um, and, and now that you've got it running, what are you making on general on your entire short term rental portfolio? And how does that compare to your job in investment banking? Yeah. So we're, um, I, we, so we closed on the first house in July of 2021. Um, at that point, my kids were two, three and five years old. And, um, I, that's when I, you know, decided I, I'm going to make this happen. As soon as that first one started renting and the, the dollars were bigger than I even expected it to be in terms of the, I, I had a sense for what the rates would be, but the occupancy, they're, they stay really full. Um, so the income was really strong. And I just said, I'm going to hit this as hard as I can. In particular, I was lucky because rates were still low at that point. Um, so I got, um, I, I bought three more houses that first year. I had four in the first year. And then a couple of weeks before the kids' school let out for the summer the, in 2022, I gave my notice at work. So I quit that job uh, about a year after I started down this path. At that point, I only had the four houses making around 200000 a year. But I had I could see that uh, the strategy was working and I was going to get there. And I wanted to be home with the kids that summer. So I spent that summer with them. Uh, then over the next year and a half, we bought three more properties and we now have, um, seven investment properties and we are making around 350 to 400,000 a year. Net or, or gross? Gross. Oh, I mean, I mean that, no, that's my profit. Yeah. That's my, that's what I'm taking home. You're making 300 and. 50? I'm making 50,000 per house times seven. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You're living the dream. That's amazing. It's good. I mean, no, granted, that's seven properties. It's like 16 units, right? <laughs> so, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, um, the power of, I think the, uh, automation in the, in the short term space. So I try really hard to automate it, but, uh, yeah, there's, you know, I, I get my share of, of the phone calls at night, you know, from people telling me that the, whatever the power is out or they can't get into the unit. <laughs> See, that's a great segue into my next question. Uh, running a, what's it, 14 or 16 unit short-term rental portfolio is not without stress. How does it compare to the stress of being a full-time investment banker? Um, so in investment banking, you know, when you're at the, at the top of the food chain, uh, it's a commission job. So the stress there is you just got to find another deal and you're competing with the other investment bankers to, to win on every deal. Um, and you don't have control over, over the outcome, right? I think that the, um, the stress in that industry was big stress here. It's a lot of small things, right? So when somebody calls you and says, uh, that heat's not working and it's 10 degrees outside, you have to solve that problem. And, you know, I guess the, but the, the, the worst case scenario is, you know, you just have them stay at a hotel and it sucks, but you're, you know, you suck it up and you got to pay Airbnb makes you pay for the hotel. Uh, and that's happened a couple of times. Um, but the dollar amount of the impact on that is, you know, 300, $500. Oh, so versus investment banking, um, you know, you're winning deals that are 300, $500,000 of, of revenue that uh, either going to make or break your year. All right. So I've got a two part question. First part, how much more time are you getting with your kids now than before? Oh, it's night and day. I, I, they wake up every morning and I'm, you know, able to wake up with them, hug them, kiss them in the morning and they go to bed every single night with hugs and kisses from mom. And, uh, I 
both of you were influential in me achieving this. And I know they're probably, uh, that my children will never say thank you to you, but they have their mom at home in a way that, uh, is, it, it's just so special. And it's, uh, I, I appreciate that from you guys that you guys were able to put that content out there to make that happen. Did you hear that, folks? Bigger pockets, making sure kids get good night kisses since 2013. But, um, what's interesting is, so my, um, my youngest is in preschool now and you know, I'm, I'm with them. I drop them off at school. I pick them up. But now, you know, during the school year, I have a fair amount of time and I, I wanted to, um, talk about on this podcast because when I was making the decision to leave my job and go into real estate, I felt like I was walking away from the career that I had built over 25 years. And I felt like I had to make that choice. It's either this or that, right? And so I made the choice to walk away from it because my kids are worth it. But what I didn't realize is that once you get to the point where you've established financial freedom and you have a, a functioning portfolio that's relatively stabilized, you also open the door to other professional opportunities that you could never have been part of before that. So, um, I've, I've been having, uh, people reach out to me, you know, not every day, but you know, once or twice a year, somebody will say, Hey, would you be interested in this or that? Um, my brother actually is an entrepreneur. He started a bunch of businesses. Uh, he, one of them that he owns is a, a bourbon distillery. And he called me a few months ago and said, um, he can buy wholesale barrels of bourbon at 50% of the value that he can sell them at after two years. And he said, do you think we could raise, you know, a 10 or $20 million fund um, around this bourbon arbitrage opportunity? And because, you know, my kids are in school right now, I was able to say, you know, I'll look into it. We did some research. I did some financial modeling and ultimately said, like, this is a phenomenal opportunity. Let's get it done. And now being able to work on something with my brother and seeing him go into investment meetings and, and crush it, it is so much more rewarding professionally in a way that I had no idea these kind of things were going to come along. And I think that there are probably a lot of, you know, probably men and women, but more so women in who are doctors or lawyers and have succeeded in their career, um, but still feel this pull to, you know, to be at home more with their children. And what I found is that once you get that financial freedom, you can still use those skills in other ways, right? Somebody who's a doctor could consult with a hedge fund that's investing in, you know, medical technology or, you know, there's, there's other ways to use those skills that aren't a W-2 job. And it's funny that I went down this path thinking I was leaving a job I loved. And now I'm at a point where I love the professional aspect of it so much more because I don't have any of that pressure from the W-2 job. And I can accept um, opportunities that are on my terms right? In the, in the hours that are available. All right. Second part to my question, have you considered carving out a chunk 50 to $75,000 a year of that $350,000 income to hire a property manager to screen a lot of the stuff before it hits you? So you have more time and energy to put towards some of these other professional endeavors. Maybe someday. I think, you know, my, like I said, my income that I was trying to replace was three to 400,000 and that's where we are right now. Um, and I, it, it feels like, you know, a comfortable place right now. Um, obviously the, in this interest rate environment, it's harder to get the kind of cash flow that I was getting initially. So once you start buying real estate, it's hard to stop, right? So uh, I imagine that we will at some point be buying, uh, additional properties. And, um, so when, when the cash flow is at that point, um, then that, you know, is something that I would be open to, but for now it's working the way it is and we're not, uh, yeah, yeah. I think you're at the, that inflection point where, 14 to 16 units. That's about as much as one person can handle. I think 20 is really the the max. 
what is, how long did it take you to do this? Like how long have you been investing in short-term rentals to kind of build what you've built so far? I got the first four in a year, then I left the W-2 and then it took another year and a half to get the, the other three, less than three years in, July of 2021. You've built a, an income of $350,000 a year in two to three years um, when most people spend an entire career in real estate trying to make $10,000 a month in, you know, quote unquote, passive income. So you've done something that, 99% of people don't do. So congratulations and thank you so much for sharing your story. That that's that's just kudos to you. That's you, you've done it. You're living the dream and it's a perfect success story for what's possible in this industry. Thank you. And I I really want to make sure that I'm sending that message to other people who have that same angst um, that it is possible. And uh, it's possible to replace a high income job with real estate. Uh, if you've just you know put your money in your 401k over your career, you can get there. Amen. Thanks so much, Kate. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. I hope we have you back on again and things continue to grow. All right. Welcome to the Seeing Green segment of the show where we take questions from you, our listener base, and answer them for everyone to hear. Today's question comes from Katie M in New Jersey. Katie writes, I am at an inflection point with work. My job is being restructured and I am being offered one year's salary as severance. I've been climbing the corporate ladder since college, but now that I have a little one at home, I'm reevaluating everything. I'd like to ultimately build a real estate portfolio that can replace my W-2 income of about $150,000. My husband and I bought a duplex in New Jersey with train access to New York City and about a block and a half from shops and restaurants in New Jersey. We plan to burr and house hack the property. We will rent out the upper unit of four bedroom, three bath. My husband and new baby girl and I plan to live in the downstairs for the next three years. Ultimately, my question is, what's the best way to determine if we should rent out the upstairs unit as a long-term rental or a short-term rental? The upper unit would rent for $5,500 to $6,000 a month as a long-term rental. And I assume that a short-term rental would be more attractive, but not sure how to assess that. We're hesitant to potentially have new short-term rental guests every few days while our family is downstairs, but the potential extra income is enticing, especially with me likely leaving my W-2 and losing the $150,000 a year. Rob, pretty good straightforward question here. Lots of information. What are you thinking? Well, I will say that running a short-term rental that you live on site for is not for the faint of heart because you're going to feel you're going to have the crutch of being next door, which is really great from the standpoint that you can address problems really quickly, but also not great because you can address problems really quickly. And you're always going to feel obliged to just go walk over and fix things. Whereas whenever you live a little bit further from a property or from in a different state, it forces you to create systems where you don't have to rely on yourself to go and solve problems. So I think if she's developing her family like she's talking about and they're kind of getting in the groove of things, uh, I think short-term rental is going to keep her pretty busy. Now, with that said, $5,500 to $6,000 a month as a long-term rental actually seemed... That's crazy. That's a lot. Yeah, I thought that was going to be the short-term rental income. And I was like, that's pretty good. That seems like that's already going to be a somewhat profitable unit, $5,500 to $6,000. So I would probably run your numbers. Um, and if the property is closer to like eight to ten thousand dollars a month on Airbnb, then it'd probably be worth it. When you get into this territory of six to I don't know, let's say eight thousand, eight thousand five hundred compared to the long term rental, I just don't think the profit's gonna be all that much more. And I don't know if it'll be worth the hassle. So I would say really consider what your profit is. If you're gonna make Nine to ten thousand plus as a short term rental, it would probably be worth it. If it's less than that, I'd probably just rock it as a long term rental just because it's like a, you know, to set it and forget it type of situation. What do you think? I was thinking similarly that I, I don't know how you would make significantly more than 
$6,000 a month as a short-term rental. And you're taking on a buttload more work here as well as some more risks. Like now you got to furnish it. People don't think about that. That's a lot of money that you're putting into this thing. And those things are going to break a lot of the time versus a a long-term traditional rental. They bring their own furniture. And if they break their own stuff, they got to replace it. Part of her question there, Rob, was how would I assess? And I think what she means is how would I determine what it would rent for as a short-term rental? Any advice for her there? Yeah. So you got to go and you run your comps. I use AirDNA for this. um, And basically you'll go to AirDNA. Actually, uh, what the way, what you can do is you can go to biggerpockets.com and go to the tool section and in that section there is a uh, a little tab called Airbnb you go and you click on that and it gives you access to the AirDNA rentalizer and you can put the address in there you can put the bedrooms the baths all that stuff and it'll give you a, a projection of what you could possibly make as a long-term rental it is not something to live or die by because it is just like an initial gut check but it can at least kind of give you an idea of what's possible and if it seems appealing to you if it's high enough from a yearly standpoint, then you can go and get a subscription and run your comps a little bit deeper. That's the first step. The second step I'd recommend is find another short-term rental operator in that area and ask them, what does yours get? How much vacancy are you having? What are you making in a year? What are your challenges? Most real estate investors are very generous with their their numbers. They We're not a group of people that tends to hide stuff from everybody else. So I think you can get a really good idea of what it would be like to operate it by asking someone else. Last question, Rob, do you think that there's any any benefit in her looking into a medium-term rental here? I It is really hard to say because a medium-term rental is going to fall right smack dab in terms of revenue standpoint. So if we're looking at like 5,500 to 6,000 as a long-term rental, I'd say a midterm is probably going to be like 75 to 8,500. And then a long-term rental would probably be like nine to 10. I mean, really... Based on my calculations, I always say midterm rentals make twice as much as long-term rentals and short-term rentals do three to five times at that. But with these numbers, I just have a really hard time believing that she's going to do 15K a, a month. You still have to buy all the furniture though. And That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. With a four bedroom, three bath, she's going to spend at a minimum, I mean, 20K. She's probably going to spend like 20, 25K, which is... $2,000 a month uh, that, you know, if you were to just extrapolate that over the, co- the course of a year, I would say my favorite strategy is a hybrid. You do short-term rental as much as possible and then mid-term rental when you can. All right. But in this case, we're both on the same page. That probably isn't necessary because the traditional rents are so good. Yeah. You probably don't have to deal with any of the headache. Just rent it out traditionally, make it very, very low work for you. And then look for another property that you could short-term rental that one. Right. But like, man, when the real estate gods bless you with rent that high, take the blessing. Don't be greedy. Don't try to milk out another thousand dollars a month. Just take it and then put that energy and time towards your next deal where maybe you don't have the long term rental option and you have to short term rental it and then you get two of them. Yeah. And, you know, you get a new baby girl, maybe get through that stage. It's very hard to raise a newborn and get into the Airbnb game. So, you know, maybe just simmer on that, let it marinate for a bit. And then once you're ready to, do more, make a little bit more money, then you can transition into STRs. The Airbnb baby method is not recommended. Don't combine the two. All right, Rob, thank you for joining me on Seeing Green. And thank you for the submission, KDM. Hope that we could help. And if you would like to have one of your questions answered on the podcast, go to biggerpockets.com slash David, where you can submit it there. I'll get us out of here. This is David Green for Rob, my Airbnb Abasolo, signing off.
market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.